why we do it. And that is an extension of, of the giving efforts that take place here. So on behalf of our staff, thank you so much for uh, the generosity that you extend to us. I should have started walking just a second earlier. Sorry. The timing was off. I even had the first service to practice and I still didn't get it right. It's fine. Well, believe it or not, next uh, Sunday is December already. I mean, it'll actually happen before Sunday, but by the time we get to next Sunday, it will be in December. And so uh, I want to kind of give you a little bit of early warning. We are, uh, we're still in our Hebrew series today. We've been in that for the last couple of months, and we will be in it again after the first of the year. But beginning next week, we're going to press pause on our Hebrew series uh, for a few weeks as we prepare our hearts for Christmas, as we sort of enter into the Advent season, get ready for uh, uh, the walk through Bethlehem and our outreach to the neighborhood. And I mean, there's a lot of exciting things happening, but we will finish uh, this morning with Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to look at the entirety of the chapter, and then we'll, uh, we'll have a break in Hebrews until we get into January. I will encourage you, if you have missed some of the series we've been in in Hebrews, to maybe go back. All those things are online. You can, you can find the audio or the video. Uh, go back and, uh, and refresh that. If you missed some of it, just sort of keep it fresh in your head, because a book like this is best understood in continuity. So we are taking a little bit of a break, but you don't want to lose sort of the flow. The way the book is written, it's written cyclically. There's a lot of things that sort of repeat and come in and out. There's a lot of interweaving, and you don't want to lose that when we come back to it in January. In fact, this morning, as we look at uh, Hebrews chapter 8, we are seeing the continuation of a thought, and actually kind of the pinnacle of a thought that the writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is writing. In fact, in the first verse of chapter 8, he says, here's my point, and this is the point I've been trying to make, he says. We have such a high priest. He's just said in seven, we should have a high priest who can do X and and this and such. And now when he gets to eight, he says, this is the high priest that we have. He says in verse one, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, not it would be great to have such a high priest or someday we will have this kind of high priest or wouldn't it be awesome if we did, but he talks about the present reality of this superior high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. He's been making the case for several chapters now. In fact, he starts in four talking about the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He expands on that a little bit in five. He stops. Remember, he kind of pauses out and says, I want to talk to you more about this high priesthood of Jesus, but I can't because you've been sort of sustaining yourself on spiritual milk. You can't handle solid food. And in fact, he says in chapter six, there are some of you who've tasted and seen, you've been around the periphery of the things of God, but you have not coupled your faith or your knowledge of God with action. And as a result, if you reject the reconciliation that's available in Christ, there's no other place to find reconciliation. There's no other way to find access to God except through Christ. He says in six, but I expect better things. And we understand that God has made us some incredible promises and that because he is true and because he is unchangeable, his promises, the work of Jesus are an anchor for our soul that goes behind the veil. Remember? He is a forerunner, not just a representative. Jesus isn't just a representative for us, but a forerunner who goes into the sanctuary, right? Into the holy of holies and marks the way that we will also have access to God. He talks in seven about the the order of Melchizedek and its superiority to the Levitical priesthood. And then at the end of seven, he says, this is who Jesus is. He is this superior priest who comes with superior promises, right? And superior power and a permanence that no human priest has ever had. And he says, this isn't just a dream in eight. 
This isn't just a pipe dream. It's not just a fantasy. It's not something we sort of wish we had. We have this high priest in the Lord Jesus. And he says, this high priest, Jesus Christ, is seated, right? We understand that this picture of Jesus seated at the right end of the throne is a picture of the completed work of atonement that he's done, that there are no more sacrifices he has to make. In fact, I don't want to get too ahead of us, but in Hebrews chapter 10, he'll expand on this further. Hebrews 10 verse 11, it says, every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In Hebrews chapter 8, he says, we have this high priest who is seated. His work is completed. That work of atonement is done. And so he's seated, showing the completion of that work. And he is exalted at the right hand of the Father. But check this out. Even in the midst of his seatedness and even in the midst of his exaltation, look at what else the author uses to describe the present work of Jesus. He says, We have this high priest who is seated at the right hand of the Father and ministering, right? See that there? We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister, verse 2, a minister in the holy places. That word minister could also be translated servant. I think sometimes when we think about exaltation or we think about completed work, when we think about being sort of at the top of the food chain, right? We think about being in this hierarchy, Jesus exalted and seated at the right hand of the throne. We think about that being a position in which he would be served by others, right? That Jesus, having completed his work, would sit down and he would just have angels and heavenly beings just bringing him stuff and fanning him with palm fronds and feeding him grapes or whatever. And yet that isn't the picture of authority and of exaltation and of leadership we see in the scripture. In fact, whenever we see the leadership of Jesus or the authority of Jesus on display, it's always in service. Even though his work is completed and even though he is exalted at the right hand of the Father and seated... He continues to serve in his exaltation. He continues to minister on our behalf, an intercessor on our behalf, like it said in the last chapter. I think that's an incredible picture for us just to sort of soak up for a second. The idea that Jesus, exalted, continues to serve. I think for many of us, when we think about sort of being able to uh, move up the ladder in our jobs or being able to grow in our estimation of, of the way other people esteem us, we sort of are working towards a picture where we do less and less, right? We're sort of working towards a place where other people are serving us. That's kind of the American dream, that you become this person who doesn't have to do anything and other people do it for you. And yet that isn't the picture of what true leadership looks like in the scripture. It's not the model that Jesus sets for us. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, the picture of real leadership and real authority, the picture of real power is in your ability to serve other people as demonstrated by Christ, seated at the right hand and ministering still in a holy place, in a tent made by God. He says in a tent that was set, that the Lord set up, not man. Now, man, there would be some question in the original audience. People would say, oh, you have this high priest, do you? Well, I don't see him. He's not right here. I can see the Levitical priests. I can go to the temple if I want to go to the temple, but I can't, uh, I can't see this Jesus high priest you're talking about. And the author says, well, the reason is he's not serving in a shadow or a copy. He's not serving in these human tents that were set up by human hands. He's serving in the reality that those things were intended to point to. Look at what it says here. 
A minister in the holy place is in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. What the author is describing here is a superior high priest mediating a superior covenant in a superior reality. What he's describing here and what he's declaring to us is the fact that the sacrificial system and the tabernacle and the temple and the priestly offerings and the celebrations, all of the the things that were done in this old system were simply a shadow and a copy of a heavenly reality, of an eternal reality. They were always pointing ahead to something truer than they themselves. We, we understand the way this works. We understand the idea of shadows and copies. I'll give you a, one example to sort of wrap your brain around. Think about, just for a second, think about uh, turkey bacon, right? Turkey, just think about turkey bacon. <laughs> there is never a time when you're eating turkey bacon that you're not thinking about real bacon, right? <laughs> like you're, what, I don't even know, I don't know what turkey bacon is. It's like old ham that somebody cut into a bacon shape and then left out on a counter somewhere. And then cooked it in a toaster? I don't know. I don't know how turkey bacon is made. I get that it's healthier for you. It's not, not so much carbohydrates or... I don't know what to, I don't know the deal with the turkey bacon. All I know is that when I go someplace and somebody feeds me turkey bacon, I'm always recognizing that there is something greater than this. <laughs> but I don't currently have it on my plate. You know what I mean? This is pointing ahead to a greater reality that I don't yet have access to. Listen, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, these priests daily were offering, you know, they, they were offering these sacrifices, they were doing their job, but nobody ever felt the sense of freedom from guilt, a freedom from shame. Even the priests themselves who were offering the sacrifices were broken, fallen men, just like those they were serving. And so there was a system in those who were participating in the old Levitical system like, yeah, this is, this is something, And it's serving us in a way, but it's a shadow and a copy of a greater reality that we're all hungry for. In the same way that when we eat turkey bacon, we're all hungry for real bacon, right? He says, this high priest isn't serving in a tent made by human hands. He's serving in the reality that that tent was always intended to point to, to give us a taste of, to foreshadow in our lives, that we would look ahead to a greater priest, mediating a greater covenant, in the true reality, the true sanctuary of God. Not just the shadow, not just the copy. That's who this Jesus is. That's the high priest that we've got. He says, this is the point I'm trying to make. This high priest is ours. And this greater covenant exists. And in the original audience, the people he would have written this to, initially there would be sort of a a sense of turmoil, internal struggle, because the idea of a greater covenant, that almost seems heretical, right? Because the covenant that God made with Moses, the, the Mosaic law that was given on the mountain, carved into stone tablets, right? This is, this is not something you deal lightly with. It's not something you dismiss quickly. And he says, but we have a greater covenant based on greater promises. In fact, look at what it says. Back to Hebrews chapter 8. It says in verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, 
there would have been no occasion to look for a second. We're getting into really sensitive area here because now what he's talking about is the old covenant apparently being faulty. Let's be very careful that we understand what the writer's saying here. When he talks about the fault of the old covenant, you need to understand that the Bible teaches really clearly that the old covenant wasn't flawed, right? It's not a flawed covenant. God didn't make a mistake. There isn't a point in history where God went, you know, I know I gave this Mosaic law. I know I entered into this covenant with my people, but I'm kind of thinking about it again. And I've decided to sort of change a couple things. This isn't a course correction on the part of God. This isn't God doing something different. This was always a part of God's plan. In fact, in Romans 7, Paul says that the law is good and holy. Now, the the fault that is found in the law, and we actually see it here in Hebrews chapter 8. Look at what he says in verse 7. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Verse 8, for he finds fault with them. It doesn't say he finds fault with it, and that's significant and important. If you read on further, it says in verse 8, he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. He found fault with them, for they did not continue in his covenant. There was no continuance, right? Remember we saw that earlier in our study in the book of Hebrews. That even though the people came out of Egypt and they saw the mighty power of God, they heard his promises, they watched him go before them in a pillar of fire and cloud. When they get to the promised land and they're standing on the edge of the Jordan, their knowledge of God is not coupled with action and faith, right? So here he says, the fault was that they did not continue, they did not continue to find fault with them. The reality you want to understand is that the fault of the old covenant was its dependence upon holiness and obedience in faulty men and women. Let me say that again. The fault, if you can say this, the fault of the old covenant was its dependence upon holiness and obedience in faulty men and women. That's us. Sinners, broken human beings who are incapable of living up to the standard that God has set living up to the expectation that God has set because we are broken, because we are sinful, right? We are incapable of living up to the standard, but the standard is good. The standard is true. God sets the standard to show us something of his expectation, to show us something of what pleases him. There isn't a fault in the standard. The fault is in the expectation on us, right? To be able to live in accordance with it. It says in Romans chapter eight, speaking about this, in Romans chapter eight, verse three, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Well, how was the law weakened? It was weakened by the flesh. That was weakened by us, right? God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Here's what you need to understand. When we talk about better promises in this text, God does not lower his standard, right? He doesn't go, ah, you know what? Faulty men and women, the Israelites, they were incapable of entering the promised land because they could not continue in what I'd called them to. So here's the deal. I'm just gonna change my standard. I'm just gonna lower my expectation. Listen, human beings, you haven't really been good at holiness and obedience, so how about this? How about if we just lower the bar to give it your best shot? You know, just try hard and wear a smile and that'll be enough for me, right? God doesn't lower the standard. He keeps the standard in the same place, right? 
He does not lower the standard. He does not lower his expectation, but he sends his son, the Lord Jesus, to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law in the place of broken humanity, right? He sends a substitute so that the law could stay. His expectation remains. His call to holiness remains. And yet there is a savior who comes and dies on our behalf so that the righteous requirements of the law are met, not in us, but in him. Better promises, better promises. God's not making a concession here. He doesn't lower his standard. He maintains the same standard. The law is the standard of holiness required of man. But now because of Christ, man is enabled to love and obey that which he previously hated and disobeyed. You see, apart from Christ, you look at the law and you just have to be frustrated all the time. You look at God's expectation for holiness, for a life of constant worship and thought and word and deed and attitude, and you just have to constantly feel bad about yourself. You gotta feel beat up and resentful of the law, angry towards the law, frustrated with yourself, full of shame, full of guilt. But if God sends his son Jesus, this great high priest, who mediates a greater covenant in a greater reality, that frees us up to love God's expectation. It's kind of like, um, like the bumpers in the bowling alley, right? You ever have them put those up? I know those are for babies. It's fine. You can ask them. They'll put them up for you, even if you're an adult. The nice thing about the bumpers, you know, you can't really pay attention to your score at that point. Your score doesn't matter because your score is going to be pretty good with the bumpers up, right? But, but here's the deal. What the bumpers give you the opportunity to do is to try some of those fancy, twisty throws that the professional bowlers do that you would never try if you were bowling with people you wanted to impress, Right? You wouldn't try them out because you'd throw it in the gutter every time. But with the bumpers up, now all, the time, all of a sudden you're freed up to actually give this thing a shot. To enter into it for the joy of it, not for the sake of trying to win or trying to beat somebody else or trying to prove something about yourself, but rather to experience the joy of throwing a curved bowling ball. Maybe that illustration doesn't work. Don't worry about it, right? <laughs> I think you see what I'm saying. Under the law, we had to be frustrated and angry all the time. But Jesus comes and dies on our behalf. He takes our sin upon himself. He fulfills the righteous requirement of the law. God doesn't lower the standard. He sends someone who can meet the standard on our behalf. Jesus takes our sin upon himself and he dies on the cross and sheds his blood. He pays the penalty for our sin and he rises from the dead. He extends to us by his grace, resurrection life. He gives it to us as a gift, right? And that frees us up to love his expectation, to love the pursuit of holiness, to love God and to love others because we're not trying to perform anymore. We're set free from that. The old law, there was fault in it and the fault was in broken and faulty human beings. So he gives us better promises, a better covenant that the old law was always pointing to. Back to Hebrews chapter eight, there are several things about this new covenant. By the way, the new covenant is, uh, is found in uh, Jeremiah. He's quoting from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. And in this, we see a couple of things that I, I think you'll find immediately familiar because they are uh, testimonial to the kind of life you and I have the privilege of living in Christ. There are things that we might take for granted, but that this original audience who was understanding the new covenant would never have taken for granted granted. Listen to what God says in Jeremiah, but quoted here in Hebrews chapter eight. It says, for he finds fault with them. This is verse eight. When he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers 
on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed them no concern. I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Just as a little side note, I love the fact that this covenant declared by God is a covenant uh, to, to Israel and Judah. Because remember, at the time when this was d- declared, that they were divided, Israel and Judah. So there is something in this new covenant about reconciliation, which only becomes greater when we think about the kind of reconciliation that happens universally now between Greek and Jew, between slave and free, right? That all of us are one in Christ. This is just a foreshadowing of that. There's unity in this new covenant. But look at specifically what it says. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Also note how many times God talks about himself in this covenant. This isn't a covenant with things for men to do. It's not a covenant of things for women to do. There is no doing in this for us. The doing in this new covenant is God's doing. It's God's doing on our behalf. Look at all the I statements, just as another side note. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Firstly, he says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. The old Mosaic law, the old covenant with Moses, the law was given in what? It was carved into stone tablets, right? Moses goes up on the mountain. He gets these stone tablets. He brings them back. And, you know, maybe you'd get a glimpse of them. Maybe you'd get to see them. Maybe you'd, you know, see sort of an artist depiction. I don't know. But you didn't have the law in your own possession. It wasn't something internal. It was something profoundly external, right? The Old Testament law. God says, no more with that. No more external law. I'm going to give them my expectation and I'm going to put it in their mind and I'm going to put it in their heart. The first thing I want you to see about this new covenant is that it's profoundly internal. It's profoundly internal. And the way that law comes to us is through the person of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. It says in John 14, John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you will know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The ability to obey his commandments is based on the presence of God's Spirit dwelling within us. Not some external law that you memorize, not some list of rules and regulations or boxes that you check, but the Spirit of God declaring truth in our inner being. John 16, verse 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. God says in Jeremiah of this new covenant, and it's repeated for us in Hebrews chapter 8, that the law will no longer be something external that you have to go and look at. That his law, his expectation will be in our minds and in our hearts. It's something he puts within us through his spirit. Not only is it profoundly internal, which I think you understand and sort of feel, but there's an intimacy to it that's really beautiful. Back to Hebrews chapter 8. He says in 10, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. He says, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
I will be their God and they shall be my people. God gives himself to us and he takes us to himself. Now what's interesting here is that that's not something new. I mean, we, we certainly heard that kind of declaration even in our study in the book of Exodus, didn't we? In the study of the book of Exodus when God comes to the people and says, hey, don't be nervous. I'm gonna take you out of Egypt. I'm gonna lead you into freedom. What does he say? I will be your God and you will be my people. God has said that kind of thing before, but under the Mosaic covenant, under the old law, Everything was dependent upon whether or not you did what you were told. There is so much about you doing the right things. Again, the people, they were found fault in because they did not continue in the things that God told them to do. We see in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Ezekiel 20 verse 11 says, I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. Romans 10 verse five says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Are you getting the point? Galatians 3.12 says, but the law is not a faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. It was always about doing. But in this new covenant, it's not so much, again, about our doing. It's not about our doing at all. It's about what Christ has done, seated at the right hand of the throne, ministering in the holy places that aren't just a shadow and a copy, but are the reality that shadow pointed to. So when God says in the new covenant, I will be their God, he gives himself to us, and he brings us to himself, they will be my people. It's not based on doing. It's not based on what you do. It's based on his grace. This new covenant is all about God's work. It's all about grace and sacrifice and forgiveness. Grace and sacrifice and forgiveness because men in his fault, men and women in their faultiness were unable to meet the standard. And that was very clearly seen by them who tried to live up to the standard. They needed a savior. God says, I will be their, peop- I will be their God and they will be my people. There's not only an internal nature to this covenant, there's an intimacy to it. And thirdly, back to Hebrews chapter eight, It's internal, it's intimate, and it's individual. Look at this. This is probably the most interesting piece of this covenant as far as the ability to understand it. It says in verse 11, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. At first glance, you kind of look at that and you go, well, what's it saying here? Is it saying we don't We don't need to tell other people about Jesus because they all know about him already. We know that isn't true. We know there are plenty of places in the Bible where it calls us to go out and declare the truth, to carry the message of reconciliation, that God is not holding men's sins against them. So there is certainly a call for us to go out and tell other people about Christ. Now, the, the thing that it's saying here in this covenant, quoted from Jeremiah, is this. The old law, the old covenant was made with a people group, right? With, a, with Israel, it was made with a people group. And it was possible to be born Jewish and not actually know God personally. And so you'd have to have somebody come alongside you and go, hey, do you understand the covenant that God has with our people? Do you know him? You should know him. God cares about you. He cares about us. There was this constant need because God made a covenant with a people group to be reminding individuals about their ability to know God. But this new covenant is not simply with a group of people. This new covenant is made with individuals. It's a covenant that's made with individuals. It says in John 3.16, God loved the world so much he gave his only son that anyone who believes in him 
Well, belief, that's an interesting word there, John 3.16. Belief is something nobody else can do for you. It's not something we do as a group. It's something we do individually. We put our faith in Christ. We couple our knowledge of God with action, as we've seen in the book of Hebrews. We continue until the end with the faith we had at first, it says in Hebrews 3.14. So what it's saying here is this covenant isn't just going to be with a large group of people who may or may not know me personally. This is going to be a covenant with individual people who will all know me from the least to the greatest. Hierarchy is out. There aren't any great knowers of God and any small knowers of God. There's no important knowers of God and any unimportant knowers of God. We are all welcomed in access and knowledge of God. He says, no longer will people say, you need to know him to those who are under this covenant. But is there still a call for us to say you need to know him to people in our neighborhoods and people in our cities and people in our families, people in our workplaces? Absolutely. Why would we continue to carry this message to other people? Well, it's precisely because of the intimacy and the individualism, right? Because of the fact that God brings this new covenant to us, because it's, he writes his law in our hearts and in our minds, that we would want to go out into the neighborhoods, that we would want to go out into the city, that we would want to go to our next door neighbor and say, you have to know this high priest. We have such a high priest. We got a project out here on the wood wall this morning. Uh, you may have seen, we sort of covered up the, uh, the other thing. I don't know how to describe that other thing. What do we call it? Just, you know, it's cool, decorative, artsy thing. And now there's a big green wall out there. It says, unto us, which is our Christmas theme. And out there by the wood wall this morning, there are baskets that have these uh, purple popsicle sticks. I had to eat so many popsicles, you guys, to make this possible. It was delicious. Uh, The idea with this is that we all know people that we need to be praying for, people who don't know Christ, who maybe have not been introduced to the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ on their behalf. You know them. And we want to be praying for them as we enter into the Christmas season. There is something really cool about our Christmas Boulevard event, about things you may be doing in your homes, about the walk through Bethlehem, about our Christmas Eve services we're doing here in the service. There are places where people will come sometimes that they wouldn't step foot into a church in another context, but they will come because it's a holiday or whatever. We're inviting each and every one of you today before you go to swing by that wall and to grab one of these sticks and to write the name of somebody you want to be praying for. Maybe somebody that lives in your neighborhood you want to invite. Maybe someone who needs to know the Lord Jesus. To write their name and maybe what that prayer request looks like on a stick like this and, to, and to, we're going to stick them up on the wall and make it look artsy again. So just give us some time. We'll make everything artsy eventually, right? Do we want to be telling other people, know the Lord? Yes, absolutely. But do we have to say that to people who are believers in Christ? Certainly not, because the prerequisite for being a follower of Christ is knowing him in the first place. This covenant is internal. It's intimate. It's individual. And the last thing I want you to see here, look back to Hebrews chapter 8. The last thing it says this in verse 12, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. We already talked about the reason why the old law was so difficult for the people who were living under it because you just never felt like it was taken care of. You always just had to keep going back. And the moment that the sacrifice was done, the very next moment you were living a sinful life again, there was no once and for all perfect sacrifice by the Son of God at that time. But in this new covenant and under this new covenant, there is a mercy that is inexhaustible. There is a forgiveness that is inexhaustible. He says, I will show mercy toward their sin. I will show mercy toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. Listen, God knows everything, right? And he never forgets anything. 
God knows everything and he never forgets anything. So what do we do with a passage like this that says, I won't remember their sin anymore? Can I tell you something this morning? The only thing that God doesn't remember is that which he wills to forget. And he makes a choice to do away with our sin, to completely eradicate it. For us to carry guilt and shame over sin that God himself has said, it's gone by my choice, is ridiculous. No, there's an inexhaustible nature to this new covenant, a better promise, intimacy, that he, that he deals with us individually, that he writes his law upon our hearts internally, and that his mercy and forgiveness is absolutely inexhaustible. And the question for us as we finish this morning is this. There is no question that we have such a high priest. We have a high priest like this who brings this better covenant, who mediates this better covenant in a better reality, in the reality, right? The question for us this morning is, if we have the reality, if we know the reality of this better covenant, the better promises, why would we ever settle for a substitute again? It makes me absolutely crazy. There's kind of a trendy thing that's happening in the world right now where uh, you'll see people on Instagram or Facebook who are like cooking chicken and waffles in their home. You know what I'm talking about? Like you'll see, oh, we made chicken and waffles for Thanksgiving breakfast or whatever. Or you'll go to like Denny's or you'll go to one of these like little restaurants in town, local places, and they make chicken and waffles. Can I tell you something? There is a place that makes chicken and waffles. It's called Roscoe's House of Chicken and Waffles. And it is the reality by which all other chicken and waffles are measured. I don't want to see pictures on your Instagram of you making chicken and waffles. Why would you do that in your house when Roscoe's is literally 10 minutes from here, right? If you have not been to Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles, you have not tasted the reality of what that particular dish could be. But if you have tasted Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles, why would you ever order it anywhere else? You wouldn't. I don't. I look on other people's chicken and waffles with disdain because I have tasted the real chicken and waffles. And yet as Christians, so often, we have this better covenant. We have this better high priest who's mediating a better covenant in a better reality, right? Not a shadow and a copy, and yet so often we're satisfied with the shadows and the copies. We want to put our faith in human beings, human leaders. We want to put our faith in other broken, we we want a priest essentially, right? We want a list of things we can do and not do. We We want to put our faith in our own efforts. We want to put our faith in our own ability to do good or to be good. We want to put our ability and our faith in all of these other things that are just shadows and copies. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Don't put your faith in church. Don't put your faith in pastors. Don't put your faith in Christian literature. Don't put your faith in any of those things because they are just pointers. They're just signs pointing to a high priest we have. A supreme and better high priest, mediator of a greater covenant in a greater reality. Don't be satisfied with anything less. Why would we settle? Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would help us to raise our standard. That we would raise our standard and never be satisfied with the shadow and the copy. That we would wrap our arms around the truth that we have a high priest whose work of atonement is finished on our behalf. Lord Jesus, that you have sat down beside the right hand of the throne and that you continue in exaltation to minister on our behalf in a tent not made by human hands, but made by the Lord. That everything 
in these Old Testament scriptures, everything in, the, in these Old Covenant was pointing ahead to something greater that could satisfy us, that would write your law upon our hearts, that would be for us individually, that we would know you, that you would forgive us and remember our sin no more. Help us to put our trust and our faith in Christ alone. We pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul wrote the Corinthians and said, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And as we talk about a better covenant, a new and better covenant, and as we remember uh, and celebrate who we are and who we have in Christ, uh, communion is so appropriate. About once a month we gather together to celebrate our Savior's death, to reflect on his sacrifice, and to consider all the difference it makes. So this morning we're going to do that. And maybe as part of our celebration of, of communion, you might want to 